Welcome to Life on the Other Side, stories from prisoners, their families, and those helping them find justice and redemption with Alec Klein. This podcast is sponsored by Republic Book Publishers, which brings you books tackling the important issues of the day and the new book, Aftermath, When It Felt Like Life Was Over, by Alec Klein. For more information, please check out republicbookpublishers.com. In this episode, we hear from Rodney Fisher, who was sentenced to life in prison after a spate of purse snatchings in the 1980s. He's been incarcerated for 34 years. The Oklahoma Parole Board recently commuted his sentence to 16 years, making him automatically eligible for parole. That, however, is pending the governor's signature. Thanks for joining us, Rodney. Glad that you can help me, Mr. Klein. So, yeah, tell us about your life uh, before prison. What was it like uh, as you were uh, growing up in in the Tulsa area? Well, I was raised uh, in the Tulsa area, primarily by a single mother, Jewel. And she was a good mother. She did all the things she could to provide for four boys uh, alone. You know, her and my dad had separated forced after he was incarcerated on a marijuana charge here in Oklahoma. And when he discharged McAllister, he left the state, went to Kansas, Missouri. So my mom raised us uh, mainly on her own. And so, you know, as boys, you tend to try to find your own way. You mix in with the neighborhood kids or find your friends wherever you find them. So I had you know, many friends, and some of those friends pulled me in the wrong direction, had me doing things, you know, that my mom had taught me not to do, because I, like I say, my mom was a good mom. She had us in church, singing in the choir, you know, with my cousin Ronnie Williams, who's still a devout uh, minister in the church right now, praised the piano for his church, and we were close. And uh, at uh, some point, I began drifting away with the crowds of the kids, you know. So I was kind of a confused child from like the age of 8 to 12 and then pulled in the wrong direction. So I had my share of that, like most kids, you know, and... uh, so I've made some bad choices coming up, but I wasn't just a terrible kid. I had good and bad in me. So. Well, Rodney, tell us what happened. Yeah. No, please tell us what happened. Okay, it led me up to. My brother passed away, my little youngest brother, Alan, passed away when my dad had told me to come to Kansas to work. Okay, I. Went up there at the age of 21 to work construction, cement work with my dad. And I was there probably eight months. When um, my brother passed away in the swimming pool accident off of uh, 68th and South Lewis in Tulsa. It's called Newport uh, Apartments, I believe it was. Right behind the Peach Street Clothing Center. That's where my mother worked. So. That was a devastating time in my life, and it brought me back to Oklahoma, to Tulsa, to 
last year with the funeral and my mom, she was devastated. And seeing her in that condition really tore me up. What happened to your brother? He, he died in the swimming pool, drowned because he couldn't swim. And at the time, the apartments were having a swimming pool party with the radio station, KMOB. And the pool was not serviced adequately. It was murky water where you couldn't see the bottom. And my brother had somehow got pushed, is what some of the people said. Because we went around asking questions throughout the neighborhood. My brother, Byron, and my cousin, Ronnie Williams, we all went around asking questions throughout the neighborhood because we were upset. Wanted to, to get to the bottom of this. He can't swim. Why would he be in the deep water? This is what the questions kept coming to us. So we found out that someone had pushed him into the water. And he was found in the bottom when someone was swimming bumped into him because you couldn't see the body. How old was so he? It was, he was 18. Wow. Just turned 18. And, uh, I mean, it really tore us up. How did that affect how did that affect you, Robin? Because I wasn't equipped to deal with that kind of loss and devastation because me and Helen were the closest two brothers in the family. And I was away from him at the time in the Kansas doing construction, trying to make my way, trying uh I guess set my feet in something meaningful, a job or a career. Because, you know, like my dad suggested, instead of the trucking industry, I was wanting to go trucking, but he talked me out of it. He said, come down here and get a job, and uh, don't be on the road like that. So I, I listened to him. And dad taking me away from Alan, and taking away from our closeness, bothered me. And so it caused me to start sliding down to drugs and beer, you know, alcohol. And it led me down uh, to a darkness that I've never experienced. Being from a Christian background, you know, raised as a Baptist. And uh, it led to me being talked into driving these guys around to commit these crimes. Uh, for them to jump out and snatch a purse at the bank, follow this lady. So I followed her and uh, Marvin Nizzi got out of the car and snapped the woman's purse. I did it. And, uh, uh, Tyrone Brown did the same thing. And they would, you know, give me money to help with bills and stuff after they had committed these crimes. And so, so Rodney, so you, were the, you drove the getaway car for these purse snatching. Is, is that the extent of your involvement? Yes, on a few of them. And they recognized my mom's vehicle because I had I've uh, been driving my mom's car. She had two vehicles, so she let me have one to get around with my family because I was married at the time. My dad came back to Tulsa, and uh, I met a lady at one of the restaurants where I was working at named Carolyn McKinnon, and she was real comforting, you know, through my dark times, and she was a shoulder to cry on. And so I asked her to marry me because my mom said I was living in sin, being in the house with her, you know, old school values, which I understood that. And so I married her thinking I was doing the right thing, but I was putting myself in a, another situation. 
lady with three kids, he's trying to help feed the kids and be a father, and I wasn't equipped to be a father. I had to take parenting classes in prison to understand some of the uh, issues I have with uh, raising kids. You know, I love kids. Five, six-year-old kids, I have a good time with them. But parenting, knowing when to discipline, when not to discipline, these are things I had never been taught, never had experience with. So. Rodney, how did you get uh, arrested? Can you tell us about that? Okay, the night of the arrest was November the 8th, 1986. Okay, I had only known Marvin Lindsay through, uh, I mean, I had only known Tyrone Brown through Marvin Lindsay. I grew up with Marvin Lindsay. We call him Pete. Well, Tyrone Brown was a friend of Marvin, not a friend of mine. So I had met him on uh, one occasion, Tyrone Brown. So Marvin Lindsay got arrested driving his vehicle after he snatched a purse. Six days later after he snatched a purse of Gladys O'Connor, they arrested him in the same vehicle he used during the first snatching of Gladys O'Connor, which is a different vehicle from my vehicle. Okay. And so he was in jail during this time. So normally he would come over with Tyrone and they would ask me to drive him around and try to make some money or trying to go somewhere. So since I had uh, insurance and uh, legal driver's license, they would use me sometimes. They would ask me to take them somewhere and make some money. We'll give you a couple hundred respects on which we need to and to take us here. And so that's how I was hit with their deals. As a young kid, I wasn't concerned about the consequences as the money, which was needed. My wife was eight months pregnant and uh, couldn't work, and I had to shoulder all the responsibilities. And having got laid off myself, I needed the money. So I was in a dark situation and a terrible times. The night of the arrest, Tyrone Brown came to my Newport uh, residence himself and asked me to drive him. And I was apprehensive about it because I don't really know the guy. But I took him anyway. Well, he tells me to follow this lady, and I follow her. She has a man in the car with her. So when we get onto the street, where uh, they pull up in the driveway. Brian says, park right here. I'm going to go try to hit her. I said, no, man, I don't like that because the way it's set up, uh, we don't have a way out. I'm not with that. Well, get your MF himself out the car. And he whips out a gun, which is like a black revolver. They points it at me, tell me to get the hell out the car, which I do. I have a fear of guns, you know, and I don't want to get shot. And Marvin Lindsay has never had a gun. So I'm placed in this situation. So I have to get out of my mom's car. And he gets in the driver's seat pulls up and goes to this area where these people are and I walk the other way. You know, less than 10 minutes later, I heard gunshots, like four or three or four shots, pow, pow, pow. And I continue to walk, walking back towards where I know the convenience store is at, a few blocks away that we passed. Well, in route to this convenience store, a police officer pulls down the street on there, walking He's coming toward me and I'm walking toward him. The car. I don't know if it's a police officer, but it's a car. And 
when he comes up to me, puts on the brakes and comes up close to where I'm at and jumps out the car with his gun drawn on the hood. Says, get on the floor or get on the ground. And he uh, comes over and arrests me, puts the handcuffs on me and puts me in the vehicle. Now he asked me where am I coming from. I tell him I'm coming from the girlfriend's house. And uh, he puts me in a police vehicle. So as uh, on the radio there comes back uh, a license plate of the vehicle, which is my mother's car. Okay. He has my identification in his hand as a suspect looking at my wallet and all that. And then when the name of the uh, vehicle owner on the registration comes back to official, he reaches on the windshield of his vehicle and pulls out a long black flash like a metal. And he takes it and wraps me in my genitals with it. And says, tell me the effing truth. I know you was involved. My name is Rodney Fisher. The name on the registration was Jewel Fisher, so he felt like I was involved. Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Why are you hitting me? He said, man, if you don't tell me the effing truth, I'm going to hit you in the head. And I said, man, look, I had nothing to do with that. I'm just walking home. You didn't need to talk to whoever did that. And he looked like he was hitting me in the head. With it. And I said, hold on, man, damn. This dude Tyrone, he did it. I don't know nothing about him. His name is Tyrone. And so, from there, they brought the victims to the scene where I was in a, a police vehicle. And they asked them, that he, is he the one that robbed you? They said, we've never seen him before. How in the world okay. did you end up with a life sentence? Can you, can you walk us through that? Well, uh, the life sentence came out of uh, Pittsburgh County, McAllister for escape. I escaped from there, a walkaway escape in 2004. And uh, I was transferred from Cushing to Jackie Brennan, which is in McAllister. And I was there about 10 months working on the farm, milking cows, you know. Uh, really a hard worker. And I'm a hard worker today as I've always been. And uh, I was just trying to stay busy and make my time go by, working 16, 14, 16 hours a day, most days, working for the dairy. And this can be verified. Anyway, I had gotten fed up because I was trying to show my innocence of this crime. I have a confession from Marvin Lindsay. I mean, I was fed up at this time, but I didn't have the confession. But I was trying to prove my freedom. And so I come in one day, and the officers, one of them was being real racist towards me because he seen that I have a white girlfriend come to visit. And his racism escalated to where he was picking on me constantly. And I told staff members about it, like Sharon McCord and a few others. And they uh, brought me to the office and told me I have to deal with it. Life is like that. And so I just was fed up, and I asked my girlfriend, would she come get me if I ran off? And she said she wouldn't come down to the prison, but she would meet me at a store. And so that's what I did. I walked away and walked up to the store.
Rodney, just for the Rodney, just for the listeners' understanding, this was not some sort of dramatic escape. I mean, you literally just walked out. Is that right? Can you, can you explain that? Right. It was just a walk away escape. There was no vehicle I stole. I didn't hurt anyone. There's no fences at the facility, so I just walked off. That's because this was a minimum security. Is that right? Right, a minimum, a real low level. Prior to that, I tried to get uh, an attorney to uh, take my case and help prove my innocence on this case. And I gave her $2,500 that I had saved up, you know, throughout my time at the prison. It took me a while to save it up. And I gave that to her in hopes that she would take my case. And for two years, she played games and put me on the back burner since she had to deal with some inmates here, had to deal with a death row sentence, uh, different things ahead of me. And so after arriving at the facility, I asked her, just give me my money back so I could try to pursue my own uh, case and fight my own cause. And she wouldn't do it, and she refused to communicate with me. So I filed a motion with the Bar Association, and uh, they told me that I would have to go through the process of getting a board, and then maybe a client security fund would reimburse me. But they didn't tell me that to happen. I came back on the scheme. So, but I was trying to bring all these facts out about the escape on the trial, and the DA would not allow it. They shut me down. They, I mean, told it the jury I was a monster. I've thumbed my nose up to society and just really painted a bad picture of me and demanded that they give me a life sentence. It's on the record. I have the transcripts. And so how can a DA tell the jury that? I mean, there were so many violations in this jury trial, in this case. And at one point, I was removed from the trial because I told this uh, public defender, Michael J. Miller, who's still in my counsel practicing now, uh, to uh, what laws and stuff I needed him to argue and I needed him to object. He wouldn't do anything. He was like almost falling asleep. Come out, we have no case. You escaped. And I'm still trying to put forth the case because he made me go to trial. They offered me a 10-year sentence that he never told me about. So he put me in a position where I had to go to trial. He was just, uh, I don't know, he was it was a straight-up sham job by this attorney. And so it led to me receiving a life sentence for a walkaway escape. No one in Oklahoma history had received such a sentence for a nonviolent crime. Rodney, so you've been in prison for how many years now? 34 total. And how old are you now? I'm 56. I'll be 57 in October, October the 9th. Tell us about this experience. I mean, thirty over thirty years in prison. What? I mean, can you even begin to describe what that's been like for you? No, it's it's a whole other world. It's a darkening experience for anyone having to go through this year after year. I've seen people die, friends die. I've seen a lot, you know, crooked guards and everything. I mean, I've seen. It. Racial wars, tension. There's been a few, you know, friends I've met along the way who are good people, but 
there's good and bad in everything, in every situation, everywhere, all over the country, all over the world. So it's something you have to weave your way through. How have you survived all these years behind bars? Belief in God since I was a young, a young a kid. My mom still faith and belief in God foremost. Uh, I've had the strength and determination to educate myself, make myself better, because I do a lot of self-analysis. I'm a very analytical person. I try to think and better whatever it is, whether it's cooking something, how to make that better, making something, or whatever it is, the challenges. I try to look deeply into it. That's the same as well as myself, looking into myself, what are my problems? Anger was one of them. So I had to deal with that and understand what are the triggers, what are the things that make me angry. How do I allow people to push my buttons? So that was uh, a challenge, but understanding that through anger management and also taking victims' impact, they, both of those classes gave me some valuable tools to help me become a better person help me deal with some of the things I have to deal with. Because it's not just you dealing with your own situation. You have to deal with that of other inmates, your roommate. You know, so someone can be upset because they didn't get mail that day and they want to take it out on another enemy. So you're dealing with a whole lot of situations and circumstances here. It's challenging. Beyond the uh, least. Uh, I, can't, I can't even imagine. But recently, as you know, there's been some good news, which is that the Oklahoma parole board commuted your sentence to 16 years, which makes you eligible for parole uh, immediately, but it's pending the governor's signature. So what would you say if you had a chance to talk to the governor and explain why you should be granted uh, this mercy here, this uh, commutation, this opportunity for freedom? Well, first of all, I would uh, apologize to you for being an undecisive and immature young adult at the age of 22 during the commission of these crimes. But I would also implore him to understand that I was uh, the driver. I was in turmoil with my brother passing away, my marital situation being what it was. So. I played a part in this crime, in these crimes, but I wasn't the perpetrator, all right? And this, uh, my involvement should not have landed me in prison for 34 years. Maybe a five-year sentence or something like that would have been justifiable. Seriously, I wasn't the robber, but... I take the full responsibility for my actions, what I did do. But is that consistent with 34 years in prison for something I did not do? You know, and Gladys O'Connor is the main reason or the main crime against me. It was a 32-year jury sentence handed down. And now we have all the evidence to prove convincingly to a jury or whoever, a court, that I did not commit that crime.
but yet I've served over 14 years for something I didn't do on that specific crime alone. And I was at work. Marvin Menzies has uh, made two confessions to this, and so did uh, Tyrone Brown admitted that he was the driver driving music during this. And these are just some of the elements and some of the details about my incarceration and my being sentenced to these crimes that the governor is not aware of. And we would just like to uh, have him understand that and look at our situation. It's all possible. Rodney, if you were granted your freedom, what would that look like? Can you kind of envision where you would go, what you would do, how you would live, who you would be with? Yes. I'm going to Tulsa to live with my mother. She's on dialysis three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. She's uh, over 75 years of age and having a hard time. She's told me repeatedly that she's only holding on, waiting on me. And that's hurtful to hear that from your mother. Yeah. That she's ready to give up, but holding on for me. I've teared up a few times hearing about this, but it is what it is. It's my life right now. So I will be living with her. I have two job offers already, maybe a possible third. And, uh, Doing what kind of work, Rodney? Well, my brother Bruce has uh, gotten a job with Aon Air Conditioning Company at uh, the warehouse department. And uh, I have another friend, uh, Rodney Brown, who has a squeaky clean service. But he, uh, he does repairs and remodeling. And so he needs someone with remodeling skills, the electrical part, and the concrete, which I have. I'm welding. I graduated school and I went to welding school. I mean, I have a lot of skills. Upholstery, forklift driving, just to name a few. You have a lot of uh, opportunities waiting for you should you be granted your freedom. You mentioned that, um, you know, you've done a lot of self-reflection. So if you were able to talk to yourself back when you were in your early 20s, before you landed in prison, what, what would you tell yourself now and to try to change the outcome if you could? What, what, what would you, what's the, what have you, after all these years, what, what uh, where have you arrived at with this? Well, as the youth today, there's not a lot of self-reflection. They're caught up so much into these electronics and social media, TikTok, all these type of things. And it needs to go back to some of the grassroots, the old school, learning the basics. A lot of kids today can't even write good uh, or well. And that's one of the things that education does. It prepares you for tomorrow, for your future. Mm. And so I would have instilled that upon myself if I could at my age today, talking to myself at 22, 
setting yourself up for a career. You know, the smart choices that you look back on and say, okay, I've done what it takes to, to be successful, to set myself up. And as a youth, you don't think about those things. It's just the here and now. The gratification of history. Right now, right here. Yeah. And I kind of had that as a youth, as well as the conflict and turmoil of losing my brother. So I was dealing with a lot back then. But right now, today, it definitely impart wisdom and time, learning, self-reflection into the Rodney of the past. Most definitely. Well, listen, Rodney, I appreciate your taking the time to talk about this. Uh, and um, I want to thank you for sharing your story. I thank you so much, Mr. Pine, because there are outstanding people in the world who are stepping up to help others that are in situations such as myself. For instance, there's a man in Tulsa, I mean, in a Texas, I believe it's Houston. His name is Rodney Hines. And he's sentenced for uh, a murder he didn't commit of a girlfriend. And so there are people who have stepped up trying to help Mr. Reed and people such as myself, like he. And I can't thank you enough, sir, for being such a wonderful person, stepping up, helping others, trying to get our stories out for your listeners, and it really helps. I appreciate you so much, and I can't wait to take you out to dinner or something. Well, Rodney, uh, hopefully we'll see you on the other side. Again, thank you for sharing your story, and please stay tuned for our next podcast coming soon. This podcast is sponsored by Republic Book Publishers, which brings you books tackling the important issues of the day, in the new book, Aftermath, When It Felt Like Life Was Over, by Alec Klein. For more information, please check out republicbookpublishers.com. Thank you for joining us today. Please stay tuned for our next podcast involving stories from prisoners, their families, and those helping them find justice and redemption. And please subscribe to the Life on the Other Side podcast on iTunes.